our passage that we're going to be looking at this morning is probably uh, the most common one we hear in our culture, but probably one of the most misunderstood and misused command. And that command is to love. To love. Some have said, some uh, commentaries or commenters on our on history and this part of history we're in, they say that we're in a war of definitions where people are redefining words and then using them with that new definition. Like, for example, uh, we can see that with how people redefine such things as tolerance, racism, and as we'll see today, love, a redefinition of love. And this is why I say love is a very uh, often used in our culture, but very misunderstood and abused in the re- in relation to our culture. And so we can we definitely see that the world has actively, for a long time, has worked to redefine what love is and then use it against Christians as if we're not being loving by how they define it. Like, for example, uh, uh, I'm not sure the ages of everyone, but the free love of the 60s and 70s, right? Love almost defined by just sex without restriction. That's what love is. And then we've got the romantic love, this idea of uh, love equated to or defined by emotion, how we feel, right? Just says the heart loves as it will. The heart feels how it is. Or the Cupid and his arrow. You get hit, that's it. Like, you just have it. You got the bug. It's this romantic kind of love. Or what seems to be very common nowadays is what I call the, the Disney love. This idea of telling someone, be true to yourself. And it's just about following whatever kind of desire you have. And that's the epitome of love is just live and let live and not impede on anyone. And there's no restriction to hold anyone back. And that's what we call love, or at least what our culture defines as. That's what love is. Just don't impede on people and just let them do what they do. This idea, this worldly definition of just strive to make people happy, make them never feel, don't, never make them feel uncomfortable, never cause conflict, just live and let live. And so we got this, this, this definition of love that's redefined by the culture. But Jesus' love, which we'll definitely see here in our passage today, is far different. It's far different from this love. And this is massively important. Because love is the essential basis of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. It's a very clear command here, but it's also where everything else flows from. In our relationships at work, at home, in our marriage, uh, with our parents, everywhere. It should flow from this essential command to love. And Jesus' love of definition is tied to the character of God. First John 4, which may be familiar to some of us, that God is love meaning that God's love permeates all his character and all he does. And so we can see what God's love is by the life of Christ. How does Jesus live? Because everything he does is is permeated by God's love. And what have we seen so far? Just in Luke, right? We see Jesus being compassionate, healing the sick, open the eyes of the blind. He's been merciful, gracious. He's been compassionate with the humble. We also see him pronouncing woes. Flipping tables. We have, I don't think we've gotten that in Luke yet, but that's coming. Calling people insulting names that they were very offended by. We see him denouncing what people say. We see him speaking judgment, a coming judgment to come. He upholds the law for those who are prideful. In all these actions, Jesus is loving. The world's definition can't 
can't take that all together. We can't do that because it's, it's all about being happy. Uh, Dr. Vodi Bakum, who's a, a great preacher, I think right now he's running a seminary over in Africa, he defines love this way. He says, love is an act of the will accompanied by emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object. I'll say it again. Love is an act of the will accompanied by emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object. So love is a choice that results in action. There's emotion involved, but that's not the the essentialness of love. And this is exactly what we see in 1 Corinthians 13, right? The love chapter. Love is defined by all these different actions. Patience never does wrong. All these different things. It's, It's defined by action. And love is always done for the best of its object. And what's best for its object is always in accordance to God's commands within that situation. Uh, did I say that fast? I know sometimes I speak kind of fast. Love is always done in the best of its object, the object of its love, and that is always done in accordance with God's commands having to do with that situation, which means in a particular circumstance, it may be loving, the most loving thing, to encourage someone, to serve someone, to forgive someone, to give money to someone, to confront someone, to call someone to repent, to kick someone out of the, out of the church for this hope that they would return and repent. The church discipline. That is all love. And so the world doesn't understand this love. That love can mean not giving in to someone's desires, yet upsetting them by what we do. We saw this so far in Luke with the, the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are reviled, those who are slandered, those who, when your name is spurned as evil on account of the Son of Man. We see that with the Apostle Paul. Thrown out and literally riots out of towns. He gets stoned, he gets beaten. Not because he's unloving, but he's being loving by telling the truth, by debating in the synagogues. And so love, as we'll see in our passage, is dying to self. Dying to self and choosing to love the other person. So in our passage, this is the main idea. Jesus, the Messiah King, which has just been uh, developing over the first few chapters in Luke, the Messiah King, the Lord of all, the one who's got authority in heaven and in earth, the one who was raised from the dead, the one who's done miracles that we've seen so far, so many. He commands you to die to self and love, and to love like Jesus and not like the world. So if you have your Bibles, please, if you haven't yet, open to Luke Chapter 6. If you don't have your Bibles, there's a Bible right in front of you in the pew uh, holding. And if you're using that Bible, one of the church's ones, it's going to be page 810. And as we look at this, let me say this. As we look at this, uh, as Casey can attest, I am not uh, – she's giving me a weird look. I, I read this, and I'll get – I got this done. Check. Let's move to the next one. It's like, oh, my goodness. I have a lot to work on. And so as we work through this – just think about our relationships, your relationship with your parents, your relationship with your spouse, with your kids, with your parents, uh, with your coworkers, with your boss, this command to love. And just think about, okay, where am I in obeying this in all these different relationships? And I pray that God breaks us as we see this, but then I pray that God's love will put us back together and then empower us to obey this.
All right, we ready? So Luke chapter 6, if you haven't gotten to Luke 6, we'll be looking, uh, starting at verse 27. But before we get that, I know we kind of anticipation, but to hold it back just for a second, the first point I want to say, and which is the foundation of this sermon, is that we love because of grace and not to earn grace. We love because of grace and not to earn grace. Meaning we're not doing this in order to earn some kind of favor from God that by our obedience, God thus will be doing this for us, that he will look on us with a new favor and approval that he hasn't before. No, not at all. We do this because of the prior grace, the prior favor that God has already shown us. And we, Jesus already laid this down in the Beatitudes. Blessed are you. It is God who's given this blessing. Not anything that we've done, but he's given this blessing, this, this God's favor, God's grace given to the followers of Christ. Jesus makes it very explicit. If you're looking at Luke 6, what we just saw last week, Jesus said the blessings, and then he spoke the woes, and then verse 27, what we're picking up, he says, but I say to you who hear, it's a clear uh, transition that he, he was speaking the woes to unbelievers and also believers warning them, but it's a, a very clear transition. Okay, to those who hear, to those who are listening and obeying, my followers, we speak it to believers. And my point in saying that is the foundation is we do this all. We obey from a foundation of grace, a foundation of what God has already done. And I'm emphasizing, I know I'm sitting here for a reason. It's exactly what Paul does, and we've looked at this before, and it's a lot of his letters. The first half, a lot of times, is, is the indicative. This is what Christ has done. This is what you have in Christ. Uh, Ephesians, Colossians, um, a lot of his letters are set up in Romans. This is what you have in Christ. Because of that, respond this way. Obey this way. He talks about the imperative. Because of the indicative, this is how you respond. And so that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. And I'm doing this for a reason. Because we forget it. We forget it all the time. I love this quote. I've repeated it before. Martin Luther, he was asked, why do you preach justification by faith every week? Why do you preach that it's by faith alone that you're made right with God? And he answered, because my people forget it every single week. And it isn't that so true with us. We forget that. Not that consciously we just uh, we forget it, but just we forget that it's, it's, it's God's favor already bestowed on me in Christ. That's why I can live. That's why I'm right with God, because of what Christ has done. And I say that because we can have two different people. I know you're like, wow, are we ever going to get to this passage? Give me a second. We can have two people doing the same exact thing. Following these commands, one person can be doing it out of love, out of response to grace, to have a Christ, and they're motivated by love. The other person can be doing the same exact actions, but they're doing it compelled out of shame and grace until they've never done enough. I need to do this. Otherwise, God won't look at me approvingly. I need to do this. Otherwise, God's going to punish me. That's why this foundation that Christ has laid it's based on grace. We obey out of grace. Amen? All right, here we go. To look at verse 27. The first point we see here is love like Jesus by dying to self and loving your enemies. So verse 27, the words of the living God, your creator, your Lord, he says this. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you in the cheek, offer the other also. And for one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. 
and for one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. As I said, he starts, verse 27, by say to you, it's a, a clear transition, it's a contrast from what he's talking to, to, about the walls just earlier. So there's contrast, he's turning to believers. Let me say this, as we go through this passage, there's indicators, and I'll, note, uh, I'll note, note them, that seems that the specific context of this is opposition from the enemy in a religious context. If you remember on the, the blessing, you'd be blessed when you're reviled or when on account of the Son of Man. It seems that that might extend to this. And I say that almost impossibly because clearly it does, and but it extends beyond that. But I'm saying within this context, it's clear, as I'll indicate, that this opposition we're getting from these enemies is a religious context for the reason of our fallen Christ, for the reason that we are upholding the Lordship of Christ in all of life and all areas of life. All right? Okay, here we go. So he says, love your enemies. And that's the main command that everything's branching off of in this section. And this love your enemies isn't like it's incredibly new. In Leviticus, in the law, they already know that God said, love your neighbor. But most often in that context, that usually is someone with the same like-minded you, same culture. They're not opposing everything you're doing. The same way of life is usually what it is because you're with Jews and you're living it out. It usually is not someone who's completely opposed to your Lord and your Savior, the Lord of life. They're not usually opposed to that. And so this uniqueness is the sense that they love your enemies. This is everyone who even opposes you. And as you can see from this passage, if you're just kind of reading ahead of me here, it is incredibly application-focused, right? You're like, oh, my goodness. It's just application after application. In this situation, do this. In this situation, do this. And so when we think about all the areas of our life, God speaks to every certain circumstance that we can face, whether explicitly or implicitly by different principles throughout his word. And so this is going to be very application heavy because that's clearly what Jesus is getting at. Okay? All right, here we go. So Jesus says, love your enemies. And then he gets specific. He says, do good to those who hate you. Hatred and enemies, those two together, is very often in the Old Testament as well as in Luke itself, Luke chapter 171, is tied to religious opposition. So I'm going to keep on indicating that it seems to be that's the context here. But this love is not only passive. He's not just saying, Alex, don't slander this, your enemy. Alex, don't beat up your enemy. That's not what it just says. He's saying, do good. It's an active. It's not a passive, like, just don't just do not do these evil things. They're saying, do good to your enemies. Very similar to Paul, Romans 12, he says, do not, over, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's this act of good, doing good to your enemies. If we're honest, we think of enemies, and it seems, well, that's pretty intense. Like, who are my enemies? And we can think of those that, that seem to oppose us at work. At times, in our church family even, where we see that we're just rubbing against each other. And if we're honest, sometimes in our marriage it seems like we're enemies. But love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Then he goes on, he says, pray, I skipped one, bless those who curse you. And the word curse, the idea behind that is an invocation to God or the, the false gods to harm or judge someone. 
And that's why I keep bringing back to this context of religious opposition. But those that opposed us were to bless them, to invoke God's grace on them, to bless those who curse you. And you can just hear Jesus on the cross where they're mocking him. He's literally ripped apart. And what does he say? Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. Stephen, the first martyr in the, in, in the church, he's literally being stoned, and he says almost the same exact thing as Jesus. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. Bless those who curse you. And let me make a side note here, because we started looking at the, the world redefines love. But we look at Jesus' definition of love here. This idea of blessing someone who curses you does not exclude the possibility of a stern warning to them. That doesn't mean that you're not saying possibly some hard truth to them. I mean, look at Stephen. Read his sermon before he's done. In fact, read the first, like the last few sentences of his sermon. It was not nice. It wasn't loving in terms of what the world will think. He lets them have it at the end. Look at Jesus. Look at Matthew 21 through 24 where he just lets it out on the religious leaders who are deceiving and misleading people. That wasn't very nice in the terms of how we think of it or how the world defines love. So this idea of blessing those who curse us does not exclude us stern warnings out of love. But yet when we're cursed, we're to bless. He goes on. He says, pray for those who abuse you. Pray for those who abuse you. The other time the word abuse is used, there's only two in the New Testament. The other time is in 1 Peter, and that's within the context of religious opposition. I just want to bring that up. Religious opposition, those who are opposing you on account of the Son of Man. But that extends from that. But look at this. Pray for your enemy. Pray for your enemy. Is that not the last thing that comes to mind when we think of our enemy? Pray for them. ISIS, pray for them. North Korea, everything going on with that, pray for them. That person that just despises you and it seems to be out to get you, maybe even to ruin your marriage, pray for them. Pray for them. It's not normal, it's not easy, it's a supernatural love. It only comes from dependence on God. So here we are. Jesus says, love your enemies. And he gives these very specific and if that's not enough, he gets even more specific. It's like, Lord, I can only take so much, right? But then he gets even more specific. Look at this. He gives us four illustrations of what that looks like. First one here, uh, actually a very well-known one. He says, to the one who strikes in the cheek, offer the other also. Let me touch base on this for just a few moments here. So remember the, con- the context, this religious opposition on the coming son of man. Jesus right here is not setting out national policy. That's not the context at all. He's talking about this this personal ethic. In Romans 13, Jesus, God himself, through Paul, Romans 13 says one of the the roles of the government is to protect its people, self-defense. And the same thing, Jesus is not talking about self-defense when he says this. Uh, The the word strike in the ESV, which I'm using, is kind of a bad translation based on the usage of the word as well as the context, if you have the NIV of the NLT, they say slap, which is a far better uh, what's being intended. It's not a, a physical attack. It's not what the intention is, but it's, it's an insult. It's a slap based on insult. Um, in history, a lot of times, that might be getting kicked out of the synagogue. 
with a slap. That meant you're, you're done. You're out of it for a season. It's an insult with that. In Acts, this word is used often, almost all the time, is within a religious context, in opposition because of Christ. Sometimes there's physical harm that's included, yes, but the focus is this, uh, this insult. And so the, the, what's being said here is the response back to the slap should not be the same. You should not slap back. You should not insult back. That's not what we're supposed to do. In Matthew's context, if you look at Matthew because he says the same thing, the context is clearly talking about revenge. Do not take revenge. Rather, the idea here is to remain vulnerable in reaching out to your enemy out of love. Don't take revenge, but continue being vulnerable and reaching out to your enemy out of love. We can see that in one sense, uh, missionaries, which we do plank here, where they're going out, and they have a lot of risk and may be opposed, but they continue because they want to share the gospel. We can think about that and speak in truth. We speak it out of love, and we're heavily opposed. You're opposed. You're slandered, but you continue. You continue in that vulnerability for a second attack, but you continue out of love because you know they need to hear that. So you've got this idea that the offering of the cheek is not so much an active pursuit as it is passive, um, putting yourself in a position of possibly further harm. The second illustration he gives is the cloak and tunic, right? He says, and from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. The idea here is if they take your outer garment, do not withhold your inner garment. That's what the, the cloak and the tunic is here. The picture is of a robbery. And the point again is to not take revenge. In that time, the roads were pretty safe comparatively in the rest of the world, but they were dangerous in the sense they had thieves. And that's why a lot of times they went in groups, like the caravan that Jesus, the young boy that Mary and Joseph assumed that they were with the group. He wasn't, but they went in groups in order for protection. And so kind of what's implicit with this idea is to continue to love your enemy, like on the roads, you're risking by yourself for being robbed, but you risk it for the enemy because you want to love the enemy. So it's the idea, same as the first one, to continue to reach out and love, whatever that looks like within your context, Understanding that there's a risk, but you continue out of love for that person. You're exposed to that possible opposition. The third illustration, and this one was kind of hard. He says, give to everyone who begs from you. And it's done in a present tense, which means a continuous. Continually. Always be open to this. And so the point is a, a genuine readiness to give your needs or to give to those in need. And I wrestled this. Does this mean literally everyone? Every time I pass the guy at Walmart on the corner asking for money, am I supposed to give him money? Every time I pass the guy at Applebee's intersection that's looking for money, am I supposed to give money? Is that what this is saying? And I wrestled this for a while. Like, Lord, is that what is being said here? And I listen to me. I am not trying to wiggle out of this. If, if you think I am, let me know because I am open to repent. But there's a lot of factors within it. Uh, in reality, in the sense of these people who might be enabling them for drugs and alcohol, things like that. So this idea of giving may be wise for giving to organizations and churches who are able to go around those factors, such as the food shelf, the food shelf, and things like that, where they're set up and they do things in a way that they avoid these other factors. 
In Scripture, it seems clear, both wise and a priority, to give first to your church family. But the point of this command is that love is seen in generosity. This generosity of giving money, but also other resources. This fourth illustration He says, from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And again, it's this idea of platoon, this absence of revenge. Jesus says, love your enemies. Die to self, love your enemies. Even if that means subjecting yourself to potentially continued abuse in whatever form that looks, continue to reach out to your enemy. Not just an absence of not, uh, not, not just an absence of good bad to them, but an act of doing good to them. And if you're like me, you hear these commands and you're like, Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, have mercy. Forgive me that I'm not even close, not even close to following these in all these areas. Right? Anyone else thinking that? Reading this? Well, if not, just wait. We're going into some more application. Some people come to and say, this is on purpose. It's hyperbolic, uh, if I'm even saying that word, commands. That he's intentionally making it so absolute just so you feel the, the seriousness and the comprehensive extension of these commands. The only way we will obey these commands if we truly believe that Jesus is Lord of your life. We will only truly believe this command, these commands if we really believe, like it says in Romans, not to take revenge because God will avenge you. He will ultimately avenge you. We will not follow these commands unless we truly believe that God is the one who provides we will not, unless we really do trust God in that. And then the summary command here is what we call the golden rule, right? As you wish with wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Not just passive. I wish people don't slander me, therefore I'm not going to slander, but it's also the act of doing good. And it's also unconditional. And that moves to our second passage. So follow with me. If you're like grudging around and all this application, awesome. Sit there. And listen to the message later. Let's go to the second section. We see loving like Jesus means dying to self and loving unconditionally, without condition. And this completely undercuts our polite society, our polite culture, the social norms in America. That's the remnants of a biblical worldview. It completely undercuts that. And we'll see that when Jesus says, do not sinners also do this? We'll see this in the passage saying, yeah, what person, even those who are lost, doesn't love those who love them, right? We see this on TV, these groups, whether based on uh, social, financial status, or based on uh, race, or based on political views. They love them themselves in the group because they're loving each other, but they despise those outside the group. Even the lost does that, and we'll see that within here. But Jesus calls us to a love that's unconditional. So verse 32 Follow with me. Here we go. He says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend sinners to get back to Satan. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be the sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. The love that we're called to love is a love that's unconditional. He gives three quick illustrations. The first one he says, 
If you love those who only love you, what benefit is that? You're just like the lost. They do the same exact thing. So the love of Christians are called to love those who don't even love us, those who oppose us, those who hate us. And he says, what benefit is that? How is, how, why would God bless that? That's no different than, than the loss. But also, how is that at all a witness to the gospel? Just loving those who love you. When the gospel is Jesus loving those who hate him, loving enemies of God, that when we love our enemies, that's a gospel, a picture of the gospel. The second illustration, if you do good only to those who do good to you, what benefit is that? Don't the loss do that? As Christians, we're called to do good to those who do, do good to us. The same idea. In the third illustration, the same thing. If you lend to those whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? And let me hit on this just for one second. This command is not requiring, is not requiring that you should loan and not expect them to pay you back. That's not what he's saying here. Rather, it's saying to not loan with the expectation that then they owe you a favor, whether that be giving you a loan if you're in need in the future or any some other kind of favor. Giving loans at that time was a, a way of financial stability or security. Hey, I give you a loan, which means down the road, if I need something, buddy, like you need to give it to me. You owe me. I scratch your back, you scratch my back type of thing. That's, the, that's what Jesus is saying here. But Jesus says that's not how you're supposed to do it. No strings attached, unconditional. And then Jesus provides a summary. Please follow with me here. He says, love your enemies. Do good. Lend and expect nothing back. He summarizes it. And then he gets this part. He says, and your reward will be great. It's not talking about salvation. We've seen that very clear. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about earning God's favor. The reward is the Father's pleasure and affirmation in how you're living. Well done, good and faithful servant. The reward is also that the lost will see you different, that there's something different about you. Peter, if you remember in Peter, Peter says, uh, now I'm blanking, but he says, be ready to give a defense for the hope that's within you when people ask. Obviously, there's something about you different that they're asking you. He says, you'll be called the Son of the Most High. Chapter 1, who's called the Son of the Most High? Jesus Christ, the angel told Mary, he'll be called the Son of the Most High. And now Luke is bringing to us, clearly we should see this, that when we love with the love that Jesus commands, we are like sons of the Most High. We're just like Christ in this area. We are marked out uniquely as a child of God. And John, first John, says this all over the place, that love is a mark of a true Christian, a genuine follower of Christ. And God's character should be our example and the, the, our direction for our, our behavior, our lives. He says, For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. There's a, a, an account where this woman's son was locked up by the king. I, I don't remember what he did. He was locked up by the king. And the mother of the son would come to the king almost day after day saying, please let him go. Let him go. Day after day. And the king kind of getting a little upset. Like, what? Like, how many times can I say this? 
And one day the, the mom comes to the king and says, please have mercy on my son. And the king just lashes out and says, he does not deserve mercy. And the mom replied, that's why it's called mercy. And the king let him go after that. In the same way, God is merciful. And love is defined by God's character, and we are to be merciful as well. So die to self, love your enemies, die to self, love unconditionally. And finishing up our passage, die to self and love and humility and forgiveness. And there's these four exhortations that are seen as one. One exhortation here. The the first two, uh, do not judge, do not condemn, right? It is not saying, and I want to clarify again because we're, we're working against the redefinition of love by the culture, but it does not mean a refusal to appropriately evaluate the morality of a decision or one's life. We're even called, we're called to be discerning. It'd be unwise not to. It's God who will judge. It's God's word that clearly shows what's right and wrong. We merely see it if we put two and two together. Rather, this is the idea of not having a judgmental attitude that's quick to keep people down and to push them down out of guilt and shame. Rather, it's an attitude of quickly forgiving. An attitude of instead of pushing them down, lifting them up towards God. And then the second two exhortations to forgive and give. Forgive and give. And if you're here today, that might be the hardest command so far, to forgive. You may be here incredibly hurt and traumatized by someone close to you. And that just hearing that forgive just rattles. And the forgiveness is not pretending that the person is innocent when they're actually guilty. Rather, it's not holding their action criminally against them. There's no room in this love that God commands for grudges or bitterness. There's no room. And then Jesus ends it here. He says, and you can see what he says. Judge not, you will not be judged. Condemn not, you will not be condemned. Forgive, you will be forgiven. Give, you will be uh, given to you. And then he says, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you you use, it will be measured back to you. Who reads that? And you're like, what are they talking about? Pressed down. At that time, that was very common language. It's this idea. It's the language of receiving grain. And so they would go to the people they're buying grain from. They'll get the container. The person selling the grain will take the container, usually between their legs, right? And then they'll pull, pour the grain into it. And the whole idea is to make sure you're getting the most for your money. You're getting the most for it. So what they would do is they put it in about three-quarters weight, and then they'll press it down, right? Who has not bought a bag of chips, opened it up, and seen that it's only half full, right? Does anyone else feel like that's the – Biggest injustice in this whole world. Obviously, it's you open, you're like, what am I even paying for? Half of it's air. So the same idea is that this idea that you will get what you what you give type idea, where just when they get the grain, fill it three quarters, they'll press it down. Then they'll shake it, try to get it down even more. Then after that, they'll pour it almost into a cone, just to make sure you got it all, and then they'll give. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. You will get your return. Clearly, you will get it. It is not for nothing. You're not going to get ripped off here. You will get it back. It is guaranteed by God to get the full measure. And it's not talking, remember, it's not talking about the final judgment. You are not earning 
God's grace. You are not earning his favor. That is absolutely impossible. Isaiah says, our righteousness, our works of righteousness are like filthy rings. And that word filthy rings are referred to menstrual rings. That's how your righteous deeds are to God. They're filthy and they're disgusting. There's no way we can earn God's grace. It's only in Christ. So the idea here is God's evaluation on that last day when you hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You fulfilled exactly what I've made you for. What you prayed for, the mission I gave you, you've completed. Well done. Not only that, there's the, the natural level, the natural sowing and reap, the law of sowing and reap that God has given. Which we can see, right? If I'm a jerk to AJ, he'll be a jerk back to me, right? Right, AJ? It's true. It's true. <laughs> no, but it's obvious. Um, Matthew Henry says this. Men shall return into your, your bosom, for God often makes use of men as instruments, not only for his adventure, but of his, but of his rewarding justice. If we, in a right manner, give to others when they need, God will incline the hearts of others to give to us what when we need, and to give liberally, good measure, pressed out, and shaken together. That was a lot of application. That was a lot. Right? Amen? So that is it. Love. Love like the Christ, not the world. Commanded to love your enemies. Commanded to die to self, love unconditionally. Commanded to die to self, love and humility and forgiveness. Love like Christ and not the world. And I'm sure as you think about this unconditional, based on action and not just emotions, this kind of love I'm sure you can think about in your relationships, how you can grow in your marriage, how you relate to your parents, how you relate to your kids at work. And this morning, you may be thinking, how is this even possible? I was, uh, I was reading a, a sermon by Charles Spurgeon when he was, he was preaching on the same passage. And he ends it. He says, you might be here this morning thinking, preacher, you're giving us too much. How can we do this? And how we responded, which is exactly true, is young. He said, I'm not just giving it to mere men. Jesus is not just preaching to mere men. But people who are empowered by the Holy Spirit, it's only by God's Spirit alone that you will do this. That's why it's supernatural, and it's not just like the sinners who love those who, are, who love themselves. So we think within your marriage, well, Lord, how can I? How can I love my wife? How can I lead my family when I'm tired from work, when the kids are upsetting me and they're just screaming? How can I do that? You can't. But in Christ, you can't through the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, uh, Jesus, how can I submit to my husband? How can I do that? When he maybe not accept what I want, you can't. But in Christ, you can't. How can I go to work and not hate my boss and not be mean to those people who are being mean to me or just out to get me? You can't, but in Christ you can't. It's power of the Spirit. How can I, when it's so easy, when I hear someone ripping apart Christ, a, a stolen abortion, transgender, how, when it's so easy just to walk and have a good day, how can I say, no, that's not true, and speak the truth alone? How can I do that? You can't. Only in Christ, by the power of the Spirit. And that's what we see in Scripture. It is John 15, 5. You can do nothing apart from Christ. It's only in Christ. But praise God, as I read in the beginning, Psalm 32, the blessing of forgiveness we have in Christ. Not not only are we empowered by Christ, but we have the example of Christ. We're to love our enemies. He loved his enemies. Ephesians 2, you were an enemy of God before Christ. No question. Yet Jesus loved you. And he did it all... He loved you with nothing in return. 
We brought nothing to Christ, only our sin, which he died for. We can look at, come with me to the upper room where Jesus condescended and washed the feet of men. Come with me to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is in this pit of anxiety and sweating blood. Come with me to the cross where his flesh is ripped apart. His Most likely his organs in the back are literally being shown to the lashes. When he's being suffocated slowly, he loved. And that is the love of Christ that we're going to celebrate today with communion.